Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly live episodes and also monthly giveaways. March's prize is a copy of Tudor England, a history by Lucy Wooding. Thank you to Yale University Press for sponsoring this great prize. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtutors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tutors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTutors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Edward VI is Stephanie Klein. Stephanie holds a Master of Studies degree in Modern British and European History from Mansfield College, University of Oxford. Since 2011, she's run the popular website The Tudor Enthusiast, where she blogs about all things related to the Tudor dynasty. Her first historical biography, Edward VI, Henry's Overshadowed Son, that's Henry VIII's Overshadowed Son, will be published by Pen and Sword Books this year. She lives in the beautiful Shenandoah Valley of Virginia with her husband and two young children. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Thank you. 
welcome to Talking Tudor, Stephanie. How are you? Oh, thank you. I'm doing well. It's so good to be here. I, it's been a long time coming, so I'm really excited to be talking to you. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to this. So let's just begin with you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about you and your background. Sure. So my name is Stephanie Klein, but I think people will probably recognize me more by the name The Tutor Enthusiast. That's named for my blog and website, which I founded in 2011. And to kind of go back, I think I was probably about 14 or 15 when the movie The Other Boleyn Girl came out. Um, to kind of go back to the to where my whole interest in the Tudors started, I seem to have kind of gotten into it right at that point where historical fiction was dominated by Tudor fiction. It was like you know, in a bookstore, anywhere you looked, you couldn't you couldn't look five feet without finding another Tudor fiction book. So I credit the other Boleyn girl and therefore Philippa Gregory with kind of introducing me to the wonderful world of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Um, and then I kind of just started reading everything that I could on the subject. But I started my blog and website because there weren't nearly enough people to talk to about it. <laughs> uh, my my 15-year-old friends weren't necessarily as interested as I was. So I started that blog at the beginning of college, I think. And uh, whether anyone read it or not, I just wanted a place to sort of share my thoughts and opinions and questions. And And then I was very excited to find that people were interested. So it moved into kind of a social media community. And then it moved into doing book reviews, which was really fun and doing author interviews and giveaways and things like that. So then I, I went on to study at Oxford and um, I earned my Master of Studies degree in Modern British and European History. And my specialty there was in Tudors and Late Plantagenets. So my dissertation was actually focused on King Edward IV and his posthumous reputation during the Tudor period. So as far as credentials and education, as far as the Tudors go, um, that's sort of my educational background. But otherwise, it's been just a long history of loving the tutors and writing for my website and blog. Fabulous. And we're actually here to chat about another Edward um, and your new book, Edward VI, Henry VIII's Overshadowed Son. So when and why did you first become interested in the life of Edward VI? So Edward VI, first of all, I think is he's just sort of given a bad rap, honestly. I think I think when we look at people who are really interested in this period of history, we get really absorbed in in the big, the larger than life personalities that dominate it, right? We think of Henry VIII and we think of Elizabeth I and of course some of Henry VIII's wives as well. But um, Edward, I think, just gets glossed over a bit. I actually start in my book about how all of the other Tudor monarchs kind of have a moniker that goes along with them, whether it's positive or negative. You've got Bloody Mary and you've got Gloriana and you've got the founder of the Tudor dynasty and Henry VIII, who's remembered for having six wives and beheading some of them. But Edward, at best, is sort of known as being a boy king or child king, and therefore almost insignificant as it relates to everyone else. And I can't take full credit for being for being uh, the one to start this this writing project because I didn't come to my publishing company with the idea of writing for Edward VI. They asked me to write about him. And I have to admit that when I was first broached about this subject of writing, uh, about him, I sort of thought, well, most people who are interested in the tutors aren't all that interested in him, you know, and I kind of fell prey to that idea. But, you know, then I realized that's reason enough to be interested in him to sort of make his story more interesting to people to kind of bring him to life in hopefully a new and, and interesting and engaging way. I had a feeling there was more to say about him and his life and his reign. And luckily, after doing two years of research and writing, I can say that I was right. And I hope that, you know, the book conveys that. So that's sort of my feelings about him. 
uh, you know, I hope, I hope I, I reach people through, through the book about how interesting he really was. Yeah, you're absolutely right. He certainly is overshadowed by all those, those big names that you've just, you've just mentioned. So let's dive into Edward's life. So tell us a little bit about his early life and his education. Sure. So first of all, Edward was born on October 12th, 1537. He was born to Henry VIII's third wife and queen, Jane Seymour. And at this point, Henry had already been king for two decades, just about. Um, and unfortunately, the one thing that he was most in need of at this time was a male heir. Of course, he'd already had one legitimate son with Catherine of Aragon several years prior who hadn't lived for very long. And he was left at this point with only two legitimate daughters and one illegitimate son. So the birth of Edward on October 12th was cause for great celebration around England. And it absolutely delighted Henry VIII, obviously. Um, But unfortunately, Jane came out of a really difficult labor that lasted for three days and two nights. Or maybe I have that background or backward. Maybe it was two days and three nights. In any case, it was a very long labor and it was a very difficult labor. And and she seemed to come out of it okay. But within about five days, just after Edward's christening, um, she became very, very ill. And she unfortunately passed away on October 24th. And many historians have speculated about the reason for her death, everything from poor hygiene of her physicians to retained fragments of placenta in her uterus that caused a postpartum hemorrhage as a topic for a different podcast. But in any case, when she died, this actually, although it was tragic and horrible for Henry VIII, it had probably very little effect on Edward and the way that he was then raised. He immediately was placed into the care of women who staffed a royal nursery. And this was commonplace for, for a royal prince. This nursery was headed by Lady Margaret Bryan, who had also overseen the nurseries of the king's other children. Um, And it was arranged by his very protective father, who was, of course, desperately concerned about any trace of illness or disease reaching his now most prized possession, right? He was also assigned a wet nurse, who was someone who would breastfeed him in place of his mother, and a staff of nursemaids, which included four cradle rockers, which I think is just like the cutest job title. Um, And they were all charged with overseeing his care and his nursery was absolutely spick and span. Henry reportedly asked them to clean it up to three times a day to keep it spotless so that he wouldn't be touched by any illness. And we know that around his first birthday, he was also assigned a dry nurse named Sybil Penn which indicates that this was probably when he was weaned and he became very close to her. So he remained in the care of the women for about six years. And then when he turned six, he actually, this is a funny, funny thing about the Tudors, that they saw the age of six as being the introduction to Tudor manhood, which I find (laughs) hilarious. Um, But this was a period of time called breaching, which correlates to the time when a young boy would start wearing breeches. And it it marks this transition into a new stage of life and a maturation of a boy. And at this time, he moved out of the care of women and into the care of his tutors. And he was given his own court. Um, at this time, he was now moving into uh, primarily Hampton Court Palace. Prior to this, he was raised kind of in country houses. And at this point now, he was being given over, as I said, kind of to his formal education. His tutors were now being appointed by Henry VIII, and actually some of them were appointed in part by his stepmother, Catherine Parr, who married Henry VIII at the same time as he came into this new life stage. Um, And some of these tutors included uh, Richard Cox and uh, Dr. John Cheat. There was William Thomas and Roger Ascham, who also educated uh, Princess Elizabeth. And we see that under these men, he was given a really wide education, which befitted any royal child. Some of his lessons included penmanship, He learned several different languages, philosophy, theology. He studied Roman and Greek classics, history, geography, scripture, and then 
kind of less academic lessons, but still very princely lessons, such as etiquette and fencing and horsemanship. And he was an astute academic. He absolutely loved his studies. And we have plenty of evidence from his tutors that he was a really, really apt and gifted scholar. Uh, he particularly was drawn to scripture, which we will see the ramifications of that throughout the rest of his life. He loved to debate it and and write anti-papist uh, reports about you know how much he hated the Pope and, and Catholicism. And we can see from a very young age that he had a much more reformist bend to his theological thought. Although, contrary to maybe popular belief, his tutors were not necessarily all that reformist. Being appointed by Henry VIII, they were kind of a little bit more middle of the road, at least during Edward's uh, younger years. And socially, Edward thrived in a, among a number of peers, including a little girl named Jane Dormer, who was was the granddaughter of a courtier named Sir William Sidney, and she would write about him and, and talk about him for the rest of her life. And he was also close with his cousins, Henry and Charles Brandon, who were the sons of Henry VIII's friend, Charles Brandon, and his wife, Mary Tudor. And his closest recorded companion was a child named Barnaby Fitzpatrick, who was the son of a baron, and he was rumored to be Edward's whipping boy, which meant that he would possibly have been the child who would have gotten the corporal punishment that would have been meted out to any child who misbehaved or took an attitude or anything, but that maybe it wasn't, it wasn't uh, appropriate to do this to Edward VI or Prince Edward, I'm sorry. Um, so Barnaby Fitzpatrick might have been the whipping boy, but I, you know, we can't know for sure if this was true. So that's kind of a whole look at his childhood, his, his interests and his academics and how he was brought up and everything. One thing I did forget to mention, one of my favorite little details about his early, early childhood is in the correspondence we have between Margaret Bryan and Thomas Cromwell when he was still in the care of her in the nursery when he was an infant. She has this really cute report. We see lots of letters between her and Cromwell kind of detailing his development and, and how he's getting on in the nursery, asking for funds and things for clothing and things. But my favorite little thing is that she actually makes a report about his teething and how he has, at one time, he has three teeth that are already out and one that's just poking through. And at the time that I was doing this research, I had a baby myself who was quite, quite young. And it was just very cool to read these reports and just think, you know, these things humanize these, these historic people so much. Yeah, that's so true. I remember reading a similar thing about poor little Elizabeth having a lot of trouble with her teeth as well. And, and that's exactly right. Wow. It's that sort of detail that, that brings them closer to us. So that's fantastic. Yeah. So Stephanie, you know, when we often see portrayals of Edward in like popular fiction or in shows, television, he's often shown as this sickly boy, you know, really not very healthy, not robust. So is there any evidence to kind of prove that? Or, or what did you find in terms of his health? Yeah, I think this is probably one of the biggest misconceptions about Edward, and I'm sure that it comes from the fact that he died at 15. You know, we must look at that and say, well, surely there was a reason for that. He must have been sickly his whole life, and it must have been expected that he was going to die young. But in fact, that's not at all the case. I think we have plenty of evidence that he was a very typical and, for the most part, very healthy young boy growing up. You know, we have enough evidence to show that he was very active. Again, in the reports by Margaret Bryant to Cromwell, we see that he was very healthy and getting on just as any other infant would. So I think as a baby already, we see, you know, very healthy little boy. We also see evidenced by Henry VIII not rushing to find a fourth wife, that as a baby, certainly Edward was in fine health. 
because otherwise I think we would have seen Henry scrambling to find a fourth wife because he would need a spare if it was suspected that his son might die. Um, and in fact, we don't see that at all. We see Henry closeted away for, for quite a long time after Jane Seymour's death. We do see that Edward falls ill around four years old. He contracted quartan fever, which is a, a form of malaria. And this does appear to have shaken Henry quite a bit, fearing for his son's life. But he recovered from this within about 10 days. And after that, we really don't see him get sick again until um, it's reported in October or November of 1550. This, again, seems to be kind of a blip on the radar. And then nothing until spring of 1552, where he actually writes him himself that he thinks that he has become sick with measles and smallpox. I argue in the book that I think it's probably more likely to have just been measles. But he's, again, he's sick in spring of 1552, and then he's well through the summer, and we see his final demise kind of start in in late 1552. Of course, he then dies in, in July 1553. But if you really look at the span of his whole life, there's not that much documented illness. And if you think of the typical child or teenager, even of today, it doesn't seem all that all that unusual, the amount of times that we see Edward get sick. So I think it, it's not at all fair to say that he was sickly. I think he was he was quite typical. Yeah, it's funny. I think it's that case again of reading the story backwards. As you say, we know he died young. So, you know, painting him as this sort of sickly boy kind of makes sense in those popular depictions. Uh, right. So let's talk a little bit about Edward's relationship with his father, his sisters, his stepmother. What was what was that like? Yeah, Henry VIII was definitely the largest in life uh, figure for Edward. And it's easy to see why, right? Because his tutors would have almost certainly been impressing upon him this idea of his magnificent father, who one day Edward is going to grow up to be Edward VI, and he's going to do what Henry VIII is doing right now. Look at how magnificent he is, and you should idolize him, and you should want to become him, right? And we see, unfortunately for Edward, we see kind of a distant relationship with Henry. But this is not to say anything of Henry's lack of interest in Edward. I think Henry adored his son as any king would. But as both a father and a king, he was off having to do the things that kings do. So he was often very far away from Edward and they corresponded mostly through letters. Um, we do have evidence of Henry visiting Edward and spending some time with him, particularly when he was an infant kind of parading him around the room and, and holding him and delighting in him. But otherwise, we see sort of a desperate tone in some of Edward's letters that he writes to Henry, really wanting to prove to him how well he's doing in his studies, you know, look how much I'm learning and almost, like I said, kind of this desperate plea for acknowledgement. And it kind of speaks to maybe a starvation of that fatherly affection that he really wanted. In any case, I think it's fair to say that Henry was a role model for him, for sure. Um, and then his his relationships with his sisters are very different. So we have Mary, who was about two decades older than Edward. Um, so their their relationship was never going to be one of kind of typical siblings. You know, they were never going to bond over the same things that Elizabeth and Edward could bond over. Um, Mary was even his godmother, and she definitely took on more of a maternal role for him. She loved him very much right from the start, and, and there's plenty of evidence that she doted on him and she visited him regularly when he was a child. They exchanged very affectionate letters, and he clearly loved her very much as well. So they had sort of a mother-son-ish relationship. But this really changed over the course of Edward's life as he formed his own religious thought because they were definitely going to clash on religion. Mary was staunchly Catholic and very, very firm in her belief. And as Edward became more educated, he became very Protestant and very 
reform minded. So we can see this really take a toll on their relationship throughout the rest of his life. And we have plenty of record of them fighting a lot and him sort of, despite his, his age being, you know, so much younger than Mary, he really seems to have taken it as his role to save her soul and turn her away from her Catholic faith, which of course she was never going to do. So this relationship was fairly doomed um, at a certain point. And unfortunately, they were definitely not on good terms at the end of his life. Um, and this contrasts with Elizabeth, because Elizabeth was, first of all, much more his peer. She was only four years older than him. And um, they shared some of the same tutors. They were educated alongside each other. They lived together for a time, you know, and they had much more that typical sibling bond where they would sort of debate in a friendly way and have this kind of friendly sibling competition over who was doing better in their studies and who was a better writer and, and these things. But what really Really helped is that they were very aligned in their religious views. And as they grew older, Elizabeth also became more Protestant-minded and more Reform-minded. And she was also quite smart in the way she dealt with Edward, because I think even if she were ever to disagree with him on anything, she knew very well that it was key to her own happiness and safety, I suppose, that she should stay on very good terms with him. So we see whenever she goes to court, whether this was, uh, you know, I'm not saying this wasn't authentic or anything, but we would see her dressed in very demure Protestant black and kind of being the model Protestant woman. And this would, of course, made Edward very, very happy. She knew what would make Edward very happy. Um, so she stayed on very good terms with him. She was very smart in the way she dealt with him. And their relationship was much steadier and I would say much friendlier uh, throughout his whole life. When it came to stepmothers, you know, Henry VIII married, well, he married Anne of Cleves when Edward was only two years old. And then he married Catherine Howard when Edward wasn't even three. She was, of course, unfortunately beheaded before he was even five. So there's really no evidence that he had any relationship with with those two women. He was definitely too young to have any impression really from them and from their marriages. But again, as I already said, when he turned six um, and he moved to Hampton Court, this was right around the same time that Henry VIII took his final wife, Catherine Parr. And the newlyweds were also living at Hampton Court. So this gave them kind of a new proximity, which really allowed the relationship between Edward and his new stepmother to flourish. And it helped that Catherine was also 31 years old. She was sort of that maternal age. It clearly showed a very, a very real interest in helping to raise her stepson. She showed an interest in appointing some of his tutors, including John Cheat. And in his words, she became his most beloved mother. So this is a really charming relationship that we see form um, between the two of them. It shows kind of a closeness and a warmth that gave Edward that motherly relationship that he needed as a young boy, but also kind of a scholarly kinship because Catherine was very well educated for the time. And she also had a real, a real interest in debating scripture. She was also much more reformist in her religious views. So this attracted the two of them together even more. So we have several letters between the two of them. He he kind of sometimes used her as an intermediary because she was easier to reach than Henry was. And we see a really nice, uh, very friendly, happy, loving relationship between the two of them that I think was was very formational in Edward's life and very, very important to him. And this kind of stayed stayed so until she married Thomas Seymour, his uncle, which was shortly into his reign. And so Edward VI becomes king at the age of nine, following the death of his father in January 1547. And, you know, a boy king is never, I think, something that people are happy with or that are comfortable with. So what happens at that point and who governs England during his minority? Right. Yeah. As you said, it was never the plan. It was definitely not the ideal scenario for Edward to inherit the throne as a child. We had plenty of evidence at this point in history that that was not 
going to be a good thing and it was potentially a great danger to the realm. Once it became clear towards kind of the end of 1546 that Henry VIII's health was fading, we see him rewrite his will. And the primary focus of this was, you know, recognizing that his son was going to inherit the throne at age nine. He would have called to mind the most recent example of a child king, which was the child king, King Edward V, who had been deposed by his uncle, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, who had made himself Lord Protector over his nephew's government and then, you know, unfortunately usurped the throne and possibly killed his nephew. So Henry VIII would have definitely had this in mind and he wrote, rewrote his will in a way that set up a regency council. Um, this was going to be kind of a group of men that he thought were, were best fit to take the helm of government while his son was still a child until he reached an age of majority. And these would be men that Edward could learn from, but certainly most importantly, he could entrust this very, very difficult business of running the country. And so Edward would, would hopefully be the most the most well-prepared, you know, in their care. So his intention definitely was to give Edward the best possible start to kingship, right? In the best possible way he could. So he set up this group of 16 core members of a regency council with an additional 12 who would act as advisors and kind of helpers as needed and assistant executors of his will. But of course, what actually happened shortly after the king's death was exactly the opposite of what Henry had intended. Henry, again, having the example of Richard III in mind, had made it very clear in his will that he did not want anyone to take prime leadership of this regency council. They were all meant to work together and really, you know, no one should have been more powerful than anyone else. But in fact, very, very soon after, Sir Edward Seymour, who was Earl of Hartford at the time, and the new king, Edward's uncle, he kind of weaseled his way into the Lord Protectorship. Um, he blatantly went against Henry's will. He bribed other council members with gifts of land and money and promises of favor. And he was actually fairly well supported in becoming Lord Protector. So he took the reign pretty much right from the start. And over the course of Edward VI's reign, we do see a shift when Edward Seymour, who later becomes the Duke of Somerset, has a swift fall from grace and is ultimately beheaded in 1552. John Dudley takes over in kind of a different way. He doesn't quite call himself Lord Protector, but he certainly rules the council in a very similar way, just with a different style. So no matter how you slice it, unfortunately, Edward is kind of always shoved out. You know, he never reaches the age of majority. Unfortunately, he dies three months shy of that, which is just heartbreaking to think about. But his own involvement in his own government definitely changed over time as well. He was given a little bit less visibility under Somerset when Somerset was Lord Protector and given slightly more visibility under, under Dudley, who was at that point, Duke of Northumberland, never really gets to have much of a say when it comes to Privy Council meetings. But as we'll talk about a little bit more, there are certainly still elements of Edward's own interests and desires for his for his government and the way that England should look, in his opinion, that still do get translated into what we see happen and unfold during his reign. But the people who are actually at the helm were unfortunately never, never Edward. The, the Regency Council was was certainly still very much in charge. Um, when he died. And one of the things that you were talking about earlier when you were talking about Edward's education was his interest, of course, in religion. So tell us about some of those significant religious changes that take place during Edward's reign. And maybe you also might comment just in light of what you've just said about the, the Regency Council. Is he is he motivating the changes that happen or is this someone on the Regency Council? 
Yeah, if there's one thing that Edwards Reign should be remembered for, it's certainly the religious change, right? That's the my biggest argument. And very briefly, it's important to kind of understand what the religious landscape looked like when Edward came to the throne, because I think sometimes we think with Henry VIII breaking uh, the relationship between England and Rome, we sometimes have a tendency to look at England as already being a very Protestant country during his reign. But in fact, it really wasn't. The doctrine of Henry's reign never strayed very far from traditional Catholicism. He simply did not want to be beholden to the Pope. He wanted to be supreme head of the Church of England. But even the publishing of his 10 articles of 1536, which is really the Church of England's first statement of doctrine, still acknowledged what was arguably the most important facets of the Catholic faith, including the Eucharist, you know, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And this was a really hard time for English subjects to kind of understand how they were supposed to worship, what was allowed, who was going to be persecuted, because Henry sort of oscillated in his own religious feelings seemingly week by week, month by month, you know, you could be persecuted for being too Catholic or persecuted for being too Protestant. So this was a really unstable religious time in England. And when Edward came to the throne, he was surrounded by many reform-minded men. Edward Seymour, who, of course, as I said, takes the helm of government right from the start, was very Protestant. And if we look at the Regency Council, most of the men on this council were quite Protestant. They weren't necessarily extremely reform-minded, but they were more Protestant than they were Catholic. So it was with an understanding as Edward came to the throne that his reign was going to be one that furthered Protestantism and and reform in England. We see that very clearly in his coronation sermon, where Archbishop Thomas Cranmer refers to him as England's Josiah, which is a biblical reference to to someone who's now going to kind of take this country into a, a renewed, brighter landscape of, of religious freedom and understanding. You know, he was definitely hailed as the Protestant, the reformed king. Okay. And this was the expectation of him right from the beginning. And Somerset, as I said, was deeply Protestant and he saw it as his most crucial duty to further reform in England. And he begins this with gusto right at the beginning. So towards the end of Henry VIII's reign, we already see that there's a new sense of wanting to dismantle corrupt monasteries and religious houses and uh, remove false idols and statuary, stained glass and things like that. But we see this really pick up at the beginning of Edward's reign, specifically by Somerset. And we also see with one of the most notable changes is the publishing of the Book of Common Prayer, which is published in 1548, written by Thomas Cramer. It's later rewritten and republished in the spring of 1552. But this is where we see a significant change in doctrine. So the Catholic sacraments that are arguably the most precious, such as Christ's body and blood being actually in the Eucharist, uh, we see this completely shift. And now we see communion as being a spiritual representation of the Last Supper, and that's it. We also see purgatory is no longer a concept that's given any real value. So prayers for the dead are seen to accomplish very little. And this is where we see the dismantling of chantries, uh, which were bequests left in wills for priests to say masses on behalf of departed souls. We also see that the sacrament of reconciliation is, uh, or confession as it's also known, is also rejected because it places a priest between the faithful and God. And it kind of contradicts this concept of being saved through faith alone. So, um, so these are some of the doctrinal changes that we see take place very early on. And from the beginning of 1549, a copy of the Book of Common Prayer is placed in every single church in England. So it changes everything about worship from the way the priest stands and the direction that he faces when holding uh, the bread of communion. It changes the vestments that he can wear to the music that's played during services and 
and the language that's spoken. You know, English now takes over from Latin, which is a huge shift. And we even see little rituals. I mean, they're little, you know, they weren't little to the people at the time, right? They were ashes on the faithful's forehead on Ash Wednesday or carrying palms on Palm Sunday. Um, these things are, are gotten rid of entirely. And, and unfortunately, any man of the cloth who refused to comply with these new laws regarding religion would face prison sentences from six months to up to a lifetime. So we see a, a serious crackdown on, on these new changes. And these are just some of the more concrete examples of, of what went on. But, you know, in summary, I guess we just see a very, very real very brutal shift to Protestant England, which which really unsettled a lot of people. I can imagine that it did. I spent writing my book a lot of time in 1535 and 1536, and, and I just always felt for the people so much because there was such confusion, as you say, in terms of how, you know, how do I worship? What changes have come in? And Henry, as you say, I think I described it as a sort of tightrope. You know, you couldn't really go too far one way or the other because you would be exactly. in, in quite serious trouble. So, I, I, yeah, yeah, I really feel for the people at that point. Point, it must have just been very difficult to know what was right and you know what was expected of you so so Edward's on the throne for six years so what major challenges does Edward face during this time oh there were several <laughs> I can imagine yes <laughs> unfortunately um, despite Edward's reign being rather short it was a really difficult time for the people there were very high inflation rates caused by coin debasement. There was high unemployment rates among his subjects who then would have a very hard time paying their rents and affording food. There are records of the prices of food rising by about 90% since the final years of Henry VIII. So, you know, you can imagine the toll this took on especially the lower classes in England. And then there were enormous military costs. There had been a long-standing conflict with Scotland called the Rough Wooing since 1543, and this extended into 1551, and it cost England upwards of 200,000 pounds. And Somerset was the one who was really trying to fund this war. This was kind of his endeavor. Started again under Henry VIII, but continued probably far too long. And he really struggled to fund this war. So he tried to remedy this by raising taxes and dissolving more chantries and gaining more money from religious houses. But ultimately, the state of the government's coffers was not good at all during Edward's reign. And this, of course, had a trickle-down effect into, you know, your, your average subject uh, was not doing well financially either. And then, of course, there was opposition to religious change. As I mentioned, all the, the ways that religion changed and, and the form of worship changed, this really didn't sit well with a lot of people in England, right? This was really, really fast-paced reformation. And rebellions and riots were common through uh, following the publication of the Book of Common Prayer and the Act of Uniformity, which really cracked down on on following it. Um, especially in the West and the North of England, we see a lot of rebellion. And the largest of these uprisings was Ket's Rebellion in 1549, which saw roughly 16,000 angry rebels marching through Norfolk in opposition to reform. So the religious change did not go over well with a lot of people. And then there were also, there was a threat by King Henri II of France in the summer of 1549 with a siege on Boulogne. Uh, there was strife among members of the Regency Council, which kept allegiances kind of flipping and made for unsteadiness in the leading of government particularly between Edward Seymour and John Dudley. <laughs> and then there was a massive infection. On top of all this, there's a massive infection of the sweating sickness in the summer of 1551, which wipes out hundreds of Londoners in a very short period of time. And that includes some of Edward's personal friends. So we really run the gamut of problems in Edward's reign, you know, from military to, to finances, to religion, to even sickness on top of all of it. Yes. Is that the epidemic where um, Charles Brandon's sons die? 
I think it is yeah isn't that oh that's awful within hours of each other yes and it was written that they died together in the same bed and you can just imagine how sad that scene is yeah every time I see those lovely portraits of them as as children I always think oh that's so tragic so Edward has sort of earned this reputation of being extremely cold and I think it has something to do with of course the fact that Thomas Seymour and Edward Seymour which are his uncles are executed during his reign so Tell us a little bit about their downfalls. Do you think they're engineered by enemies at court or what happens? I would say that Thomas Seymour's downfall had much less to do with his enemies engineering anything than it had to do with his own poor decision making. I don't think Thomas Seymour was a bad man or a malicious man, but I think based on my research that he was a fairly insecure man. And I think he had trouble with the power that his brother held. I think he felt very threatened in his own position and As most men at the Tudor court, he craved more power and position than he really had. You know, we see him bribing Edward VI with money and gifts and trying to be sort of the popular uncle, kind of trying to displace his his brother who holds all the power. He even talks about possibly marrying Princess Elizabeth and at one point Princess Mary, who he's reminded very swiftly that they're way above his station. But he he marries Catherine Parr, who is the former Queen of England and certainly above his station. So he really just makes some honestly dumb decisions. He took up or at least attempted a very inappropriate relationship with his niece, Princess Elizabeth, when she was living with him and Catherine. On top of that, he plots against his brother, the Lord Protector, and he spoke rather openly about rising against him with an army and funding this army. And then most shockingly of all, we see him actually attempt to kidnap King Edward in the middle of the night, uh, right from his bed. And uh, of course, in the chaos of this event, he ends up accidentally shooting Edward's poor dog and he finds himself arrested. And what I find really interesting is that even the last thing, the very last thing on this earth that Thomas Seymour tries to do from his prison cell in the Tower of London is to scribble a note to princesses Mary and Elizabeth and hide it in his shoe, encouraging them to unite against their brother. This is just such a stupid thing to do. But, you know, he hides this note in the sole of his shoe and it's found on the scaffold by a servant. So, of course, it comes to nothing and it it never would have anyway, I'm sure. But it shows that Thomas's actions kind of always up to the very end had this self-destructive quality to them. Again, I'm not trying to bash Thomas Seymour because he actually gives us researchers a lot to talk about. But um, but I, I wouldn't say that his ultimate downfall was caused by anyone other than himself, really. I think his actions built on top of themselves. Edward Seymour, on the other hand, who I'll refer to as Somerset because sometimes the two Edwards get a little bit confusing. He certainly had his enemies and and they were very keen to be rid of him by 1552. So I think it's fairer to say that his downfall was a bit more orchestrated by others. He wasn't without his own bad decisions, though. You know, the rough wooing in Scotland was very irresponsibly paid for, and it went on for way too long. As I said already, he debased the coin, um, causing inflation in England to rise so high that the cost of living was virtually impossible for the lowest classes of England citizens. And he made himself deeply unpopular with many subjects. For these reasons, and for his crackdown on Protestant reform, you know, he was not in a very good place with his enemies. But although some of his actions were questionable, he undoubtedly brought some of this unpopularity upon himself. You know, it's significant to note that he was also a really real threat to other powerful men. You know, Thomas Seymour was no threat. He controlled no one. He wanted to 
to control them. But Somerset was Lord Protector, and many of the men at court were indebted to him because he had gifted them with lands and titles and money as a means to garner support. So as the most powerful man in England at the time, his influence and his position made him a very real threat to people. And as other notable courtiers and members of the council thought he was doing a poor job for the country, they saw it necessary to be rid of him, right? So the most notable of these men is John Dudley, who of course, would later take Somerset's place after his execution. At the time, he's he's known as the Earl of Warwick, so I'll call him Warwick. He gained uh, quite a lot of support after being instrumental in the crushing of Kett's rebellion. And um, at this point, in around October 1549, a coup starts to take place kind of against Somerset. Um, and this is the beginning of a long and drawn-out downfall for him, right? He actually shockingly does exactly the same thing that that Thomas Seymour does, but much more successfully. He grabs the king from his bed at Hampton Court and he hauls him away to Windsor Castle trying to evade Warwick and his men. This ultimately results in a brief arrest, which uh, lasts for about four months, and then he returns to court. But Dudley is kind of more leading things at this point, so Somerset's just sort of there, and and we see a clashing of of those two men, of course. Uh, But he does briefly return to court and to the king's favor, but then he's finally imprisoned again and executed about two years later. And ultimately, I think it's fair to say in Somerset's case that his end was fairly orchestrated by Warwick, which I think English subjects at the time saw was the case as well. Somerset's execution was actually a really sad affair. People were really, really sad at his execution. And they they ended up calling him the good Duke and ended up later calling once John Dudley became Duke of Northumberland, they, they named him the bad Duke. So I think even just there with those monikers, we can kind of see even popular opinion at the time was that Somerset's uh, downfall was was rather orchestrated by him. And uniquely, I think for the time or up until this point anyway, Edward actually kept a personal diary, which is fascinating during his reign. So what does it tell us about this young king? Well, unfortunately, it doesn't tell us very much. Um, I was so excited when I first started my research because we have this incredible resource written by the man himself or the boy himself. We would love this from Henry VIII, right? <laughs> what better source to consult? Uh, to really get to know the person, right? And to get to know his reign through his words. But in fact, this diary, which is known as Edward's Chronicle, is written much more like any historical chronicle of England. Um, And it really seems to have been used more as a way for Edward to document um, the things that were happening during his reign, rather than his innermost thoughts and opinions. Uh, We rarely get any real look at the humanity of Edward in this diary, which is unfortunate for someone who's researching him. But, you know, we need to keep in mind what this diary was probably intended to be. It was started when he was about age 12 in 1550, and it likely originated as a writing project by his tutor, John Cheek, meant to kind of cultivate Edward's writing skill and his penmanship and just sort of practice writing about events that were taking place. And and throughout the writing, we actually see Edward kind of makes a shift in writing from the third person to the first person. It really does look kind of like other chronicles that are written by Hollinshed or Hall at certain times, you know. Some historians have chosen to read a little bit too much into the tone of the chronicle. You know, we do have, for example, one entry where he writes, the Duke of Somerset had his head cut off upon Tower Hill between eight and nine o'clock in the morning. And I see this example written many times 
kind of trying to prove that Edward had this very cold outlook on his uncle's execution because we don't have any real sympathy or sadness, you know, in this diary entry. But I don't think that that we should take that to mean that he didn't have any sympathy or sadness at the event. I think it's written as a statement of fact, as were most things in the Chronicle. I think that's all it's meant to be. So it's, um, it, it's important to kind of keep that context when reading the Chronicle. Edward certainly didn't intend for anyone to really get to know him or his, his innermost thoughts by writing it. But I think what it does show is sort of an affinity and an interest in documenting the events of his reign. And this might speak to his more ac academic side, that he kept this up until shortly before his death. You know, it gives a sense of him wanting his reign to be remembered for things. And he writes a lot about military pursuits, and he certainly writes about the plague. You know, he writes about the, the big political moments in his reign as well. And he really kind of shows what he wants his reign to be remembered for in doing that. So if we if we choose to view it as any more than just John Cheek's writing assignment, this is how we should look at it as opposed to a real, you know, diary or journal of sorts. So talk to us, Stephanie, about Edward's final illness that you've already briefly mentioned and his death and, of course, his device for the succession. Yeah, we really see the beginning of Edward's final illness around um, April 1552. Um, and this wasn't particularly dire, it doesn't seem, but it did garner a little note in Edward's Chronicle where he says, I feel sick of the measles and the smallpox. And I argue in the book, as do some other historians, that this is probably more likely to have just been measles because he, he never had the, the pock marks that are typical of having a smallpox infection. Um, but he does seem to have recovered by the end of that month. And actually, because he was nearing the age of majority, he would he was then kind of taking this opportunity in the summer of 1552 to, to do a progress around England and kind of show himself to his subjects. So we do know that he, he went on this progress and he must have been feeling fine for it, right? But towards the end of the year, I think around October 1552, he kind of becomes sick again. And this was cause enough for his attendants to become pretty concerned. They even hired an astrologer to come to court and cast his horoscope. And of course, this horoscope says that he's going to live a long, long life and he's going to be just fine. He's going to recover from this and live decades more. But as we know, that's not the case. Towards the end of the year and into 1553, we see his illness just getting worse and worse. We have records of his hacking cough and a bad fever that just worsened and chills, body swelling. He's breaking out in ulcers by the spring and coughing up a putrid matter and kind of drifting in and out of sleep by the end. And it's, it's really striking when we see in February that his sister Mary actually visits court because she's so concerned over his health and the way that she's greeted by even men like John Dudley, who was one of her sworn enemies. You know, she's greeted in this way that very much shows she's about to become queen and people are sort of trying to ingratiate themselves to her good favor. And so that really shows how dire the situation was becoming for Edward. And on that note, you know, the threat of Mary becoming queen would have really struck fear into the heart of Northumberland. As I said, they were not on good terms. Mary hated him. And he knew that any amount of power that he had gained under Edward's reign was very swiftly going to be undone when Mary came to the throne. So it's fairly widely believed by historians that 
the concept of changing the order of succession was Northumberland's initial idea. If he could influence the next monarch, then he could help, in theory, retain some of his position and power, or even possibly become more so. So he'd likely been planning this a little bit in advance, but it was around April 1553 that he actually first broached the idea of um, a possible marriage between his son, Guildford Dudley, and Lady Jane Grey, who uh, was already in line to the English throne through her mother, who was a niece of Henry VIII. And she had already been written into the will of of Henry VIII. So Northumberland kind of would have seen this as a relatively easy adjustment, really. If they could move Mary aside, and in doing so, they would also have to move Elizabeth in favor of Jane Grey, then he could be the father-in-law of the queen, and therefore even more powerful. And Edward, of course, liked this idea, right? Because Jane was fervently Protestant, as was he. So we do know he had a relationship with her. They kind of grew up again in tandem, sort of like him and Elizabeth, and they shared this this belief in reform and this anti-Catholic sentiment. So since he had fought for years with his sister Mary, this likely didn't take much convincing for him. This was the best way forward for England. You know, it was more than just putting the person that you kind of like more in line to the throne. It's about preserving the reform and, and the efforts made under your reign, you know, when you're gone. He would have certainly known that all of this religious work would have been dismantled under Mary. So even though this was likely the original brainchild of Northumberland, um, it had its endorsement certainly by Edward. And um, Guildford and Jane were married the following month in May. And what followed was the rewriting of Henry VIII's Order of Succession, which Edward titled My Device for the Succession. And this was brought before the council in June. This caused a bit of back and forth among council members because this was astonishing and it was illegal to... (laughs) to be going blatantly against Henry VIII's order of succession. But Edward himself was the one who basically put the hammer down and said, look, we're running out of time. My reformation is running running out of time. And ultimately, it was finally approved just in time for Edward to kind of retreat to his chambers and, and not return. So um, the commonly held belief is that Edward died of consumption which is also known as tuberculosis. And this was likely compounded by a compromised immunity from that bout with measles the previous year. This is something that was argued by Chris Skidmore in his wonderful biography of Edward VI and something that I think there's pretty good reason to believe that the two were related. So, And unfortunately, after that very lengthy, horrible-sounding illness, Edward passed away on July 6th, 1553. I recently read an article, actually, just popped into my head while you were while you were speaking, an article that that basically said that had Edward lived, he would have become a greater tyrant than his father. So Mm -hmm. that's that kind of, you know, reputation that he's earned for whatever reason of being very cold and a tyrant, almost a boy tyrant. So in, in your research, during your research, do you feel that that's the case or do you think he's being seriously misunderstood? I think we do have some evidence from his tutors specifically. So talking about when he was, you know, six and older, that his personality might have been a little bit reminiscent of Henry VIII. We do have, it, I think it was reported by Reginald Pohl that at one point as a child, he flew into such a rage that he tore apart a living falcon in front of one of his yes, tutors. Which right, is, yeah. I mean, shocking to consider a young boy doing such a thing. But if that's true, you know, it certainly speaks to a certain personality that maybe reminded people of the fits of rage that Henry VIII flew into. 
you know, we don't have a ton of evidence to show what his personality was really like as he grew older. Certainly as king, we kind of don't see his tutors talking much about his behavior or his personality at all. But I too, of course, have seen that quote and that belief that he would have been a greater tyrant than Henry VIII. And I think, you know, that that must speak to some of this wild rage that we that we may have seen when he was younger that his tutors remarked upon. They did say he was very stubborn and willful. And, you know, maybe this is when Barnaby Fitzpatrick was pulled in to take some of that whipping boy punishment that needed to be meted out. You know, I'm not sure. Yes, I know. And it's a big claim. I think, yeah, greater tyrant than Henry is a, it's a big claim. Just a last question on Edward. What do you think is one of the, the greatest misconceptions then about Edward VI? Gosh, I think the main misconception about Edward's reign is that it was boring. You know, I hope throughout this conversation that I've proved it wasn't boring and that, in fact, a whole lot happened. You know, it wasn't the most scandalous or salacious or romantic or terribly brutal or even dangerous reign of the Tudor dynasty, but there were serious ramifications for English subjects at the time. And, you know, most notably, religion in England forever changed with Edward's reign, even though, as we know, the device for the succession was not wholly successful and Catholic Mary did come to be queen after all, England and did see a brief resurgence of the Catholic faith, but still so many of the laws and publications that were put forward during Edward's reign were continued and improved upon later during his other sister Elizabeth's reign. For example, the 42 articles that were published by Archbishop Cranmer as part of Edward's Reformation led the way to the 36 articles published under Elizabeth's reign, which just scaled back only slightly as she kind of attempted a bit more of a middle-of-the-road approach to religion. And today in England, those 36 articles and the Book of Common Prayer are two main pillars of the modern church. So, and Thomas Cranmer is still recognized today as one of the sources for theological authority, you know, for the church. So, and he did the vast majority of his work during Edward's reign. So really this, albeit brief period of English history of 1547 to 1553, which is so often overlooked in favor of the other bolder Tudor monarchs, had really significant impact on England as a whole and can still be seen in the English church today, which I think is really fascinating. And so, of course, along with the misconception of his reign being boring, or insignificant, there's also a popular notion that Edward played no part in the decisions made during his reign. And this just simply isn't true when we look at the evidence. His contemporaries, such as uh, John Cheek and Roger Ascham, his tutors, both saw Edward as a pretty brilliant young man who took a really active role in furthering his own uh, views on religious change in the country. Um, and even though this obviously had to be done by the older men in charge, we would not have had such enormous Protestant change if Edward had not been you know, at his core, a Protestant believer who really wanted these things to happen. So, you know, ultimately, I hope through both this conversation and of course through my book that I can kind of show that not only was his reign not that boring and significant time period that we sort of gloss over when we're talking about the Tudors, but also, you know, Edward truly did have to believe in these things in order for them to actually happen. So I think he played a, a larger hand than he's often given credit for. I think you very successfully demonstrated that at the very least this deserves a closer look um, this period of time. And and I, I feel like I know Edward a little bit better now. So I, th I think, think you've done a wonderful job of bringing him to life. So thank you. Um, oh, I can't let you go just yet, though. So I've got some questions for you. We always have a little 10 questions at the end when my guests are first on the show for the first time. So first one, what was the last book that you read? Wow, it's horrible to say that I can't think of the title of it. I'm currently reading two books right now. 
so I'm, gosh, well, I'm a parent of two young children, right? So I read a lot of parenting books. Um, One that I just purchased that I'm about to read is called Rest, Play, Grow. And it's um, all about understanding your preschooler. So I have a nearly three-year-old and I need all the help I can get in understanding my preschooler. I love it. And you may have just said there may be people listening, thinking I need to get that book too, to understand my preschool. (laughs) Um, What about a a favorite movie, one that you go, or or even a series that you like to rewatch every so often? So my favorite movie is Shakespeare in Love. Um, I'm not just saying that because I'm on a Tudor podcast. I really do love that movie. As far as a series, I'm going to say this is, this is not historical at all, but any American listening to this might be into the series. It's a current one. It's called Yellowstone. This is one of the most popular shows here. I, I don't know if it's reached you. Oh, this is a show that it's still going on, but I think um, I can already say that long like, when it's long over, I will still go back and I will watch every season again. You obviously live in the United States, but I know you've done a, a bit of travel before. Do you have a favorite historic site either in the in the States or overseas that you like to visit? Oh, I think my answer is very, very typical of anyone who loves the Tudors. I can't, I truly cannot get enough of the Tower of London. And this might be the most boring answer for um, a Tudor fan to (laughs) say, um, because it's probably one of the first places that any fan of the Tudor period goes, but I'm absolutely obsessed with the Tower. And I think every time that I go, I find new things to pay attention to and new little corners, you know, that reveal new bits of history that I didn't catch the last time I was there. So I think any time that I go to London, that will be my first, my first stop. And it's always my first recommendation for someone going for the first time. Absolutely. And you're right. I think every time I've gone as well, there's been something new I've noticed, or I've been able to look at something. So it's worth going all the time, which is what I do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So you've said you're very busy because you've got two young children. So what do you like to do to relax a little bit? I read, which is ironic because I couldn't name the last book that I read. <laughs> I would say that whenever I'm given any any amount of downtime, even if it's a couple minutes in between putting each kid to bed, um, I like to just kind of sneak into my room and read a couple pages. So that's sort of how I unwind. I really, really love to read whenever I get the time, which is not easy with two littles. What about a favorite holiday location? Jamaica. Jamaica is my favorite. That's the best vacation I have ever been on. It was a place that I would go back to time and time again. I highly recommend it. Oh, wonderful. I haven't been there, so I have to add that to my list. And a new skill that you would like to learn if you had a bit more time. Right, right. If I had a bit more time. Let's see. I've always wanted to learn French. I tried briefly to teach myself French in college and that just didn't stick. And um, I think that that would be a really, really cool thing to know how to do. I, I did learn German in history or sorry, I learned um, German in high school, but it did not stick either. <laughs> and I think if I could go back, I'd love to to switch over to French. So yeah, I absolutely want to be like the tutors. I want to speak five languages, six languages. Right? Yeah. <laughs> do you have any pets? I do. I have two cats, Yeti and Fred. And yeah. um, Fred has recently abandoned us. Uh, oh. We've started letting our cats out outside since we moved to a house with with a larger piece of property and Fred actually loves being outside a bit too much and he ended up adopting my neighbor so we we go through long periods of time where we don't see him and then he'll pop in for breakfast and then he'll leave again but Yeti is our little couch potato cat who doesn't stray far and he's so good with our kids so those are our two little fur babies oh lovely and what about favorite 
comfort food for you? I know you're still in the cooler, cooler months. So what do you like to, to have during these, this period? Any pasta. I'm a sucker for any pasta plate. I'm making spaghetti this week and I can't wait. Pasta is always my favorite. It really is. Honestly, it just, you know, if you've had a bad day, a nice bowl of of spaghetti just does the trick, doesn't it? (laughs) Absolutely. And last question, what's something you're looking forward to this year? This year. Okay. Other than the publishing of my book, which is supposed to come out this spring. Gosh, I would say that that's the biggest thing that I'm excited about. (laughs) So what's the date? What's the release date at the moment? I I think that it's April 30th. So it's available for pre-order now, but I can't, you know, that's got to be actually the thing that I'm most looking forward to is honestly just holding that book in my hands for the first time, because it's always been a dream to write a book, especially to have something published by a traditional publisher and to hold that hardcover in my hands, I think is just going to be so amazing, you know, a feeling that I, I can't actually even imagine yet. Oh, it's, it's a great feeling. And it actually doesn't matter how, how many times you do it. It still is an incredible moment considering yeah. the years you've, you've invested in it. So, oh, that's really exciting. I look forward to seeing that picture of you with it when you, when you finally get it, that's, that's going <laughs> to oh, be yes. great. <laughs> and just yes. the, the last thing, Stephanie, is a tutor takeaway. So I ask all my guests for a takeaway, something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a takeaway for us? My tutor takeaway is actually a local one. So it is a web page. Don't worry, you don't have to travel to Virginia. But um, what we have here in Virginia, just a couple hours away from me in Richmond, is a house called Agecroft Hall. And this is a place that was built in uh, the late 15th century in Lancashire, England. It was owned by the Prestwich family, and it moved down the line to the Langley family, who lived there until 1561. Uh, when their male line ended. And basically by the end of the 19th century, the industrialization of the area was kind of taking a toll and it fell into great disrepair. And it was eventually sold at auction in 1925 to Mr. and Mrs. Thomas C. Williams, who were wealthy uh, landowners in Virginia and entrepreneurs. And it was sort of the style of the day, I suppose, to build kind of it like this English manor house that was reminiscent of the ones, of course, that you'd see in Europe. So they actually chose to dismantle this estate in Lancashire, England, and transport it across the Atlantic Ocean piece by piece and and build it back together, not exactly as it was in England, but kind of in a more modern, functional way. Um, and now it sits on, on an estate overlooking the James River. And um, it was completed in 1928, sadly, just one year before Thomas died, but he left it in his will that once he and his wife were gone, it should be turned into a house museum. So that's what it is today. And now they put on uh, many historical and cultural events in the year, including an annual Shakespeare festival. So my, my tutor takeaway is for people to go to Agecroft's website, where they can kind of check out an, a pretty extensive blog, which details all sorts of tidbits from the Tudor period, including artifacts in the house and architectural details. And um, it's a pretty, pretty cool blog to check out that just brings this house's history to life because it's quite a cool story. So I just, I had to include that because it's, you know, not often that someone in Virginia can have, you know, a little bit of, um, of Tudor history virtually in our backyard. But, you know, I think that is pretty cool for us to have. So 
Absolutely. And, you know, I have visited Agecroft Hall myself and it is, oh it, my is goodness. Yeah, it is wonderful. And I was doing a tour of the East Coast of the US and it was wonderful and very authentic. And you do kind of feel like you've stepped into England for a moment there. So it's wonderful. Yeah. I, I highly recommend it as well. And I'll add the link to the website on our show notes. So it's easy for people to find. Stephanie, this has been so wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much for making the time to talk tutors. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. I'm so glad that you had me on. I'm glad it worked out. And I hope people come away with an understanding of Edward, maybe more so than they had before. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music